Okay. <laughs> I know, if, if you guys are like me, uh, or if I'm like you, I know that there has been a lot of focus for the last, like, three months, three and a half months, on details. We've been tackling things. I think it was of the Lord. I was happy about it. I'm still happy about it. But, um, you know, you dive into words like hell. You dive into issues like judgment. Lately, you dive into things like justice. Like, I know just the, the justice thing was sort of surprising to me and a little uh, disappoint, disappointing in a way because it actually raised more questions than it <laughs> provided answers when I realized it. So I've got, I've got two quick review slides. I introduced something last week that I realize is the point of why we even started looking at this in the first time. I know I've mentioned a number of times looking back and saying, um, this all started when we said, so what did John the Baptist mean when he, he said that, Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Well, he meant what he said. And so that pursuit of something so fundamental, what did Jesus do? about sin and what is he doing and what are we looking forward to and what are we experiencing and what are we looking forward to as we move forward, it raised a lot of these questions. And, you know, people could challenge, well, I don't know how one thing led to another, but it did. So anyway, here we are tonight. And last week I introduced those three potential concepts ostensibly to give us something to bounce the concept of justice off of. But I've been convicted by the Lord that it's time to just be, you know, kind of direct about this. So we're going to look at those again tonight in more relationship, a little bit more with the Word. Uh, it doesn't look like it if I if you were to look at the PowerPoint, but the whole thing tonight is designed to not be very long uh, because we're just going to move relatively quickly through it and leave some time for questions. So it's good that that was the case, and here we go. So here are two quotes from two people that I respect very, very highly, and it's in relationship to thinking about, and you know, so I said thinking through judgment, justice, and salvation from the ages to come backwards. Uh, that's what I was talking about justice last time. But really what I'm talking about is I'm talking about God and his judgment, his justice, and his salvation, because it's really about God. That's who we're thinking about. So A.W. Tozer made this statement. It's pretty famous. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And then C.S. Lewis read that statement, and I think some others had parroted it, and I don't think he was attacking A.W. Tozer in any way, shape, or form, but he said, by God himself, it is not, meaning what we think about God is the most important thing thought we ever have. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. And I understand what Lewis is saying, because Lewis is saying that what reality flows from what God thinks. And from what it flows from what he says and what he does. So as important as it is of how we think about God, and that has been the driving thing uh, that, that caused me to tackle the issue of hell, for instance, or judgment, because we have, uh, see, no, none of us, none of us don't have an opinion about anything doctrinal. Because we've all been around the church long enough to have a thought about it. And so do those opinions, what do they produce as far as an image of God and an image of what we think God thinks of us? And that's really what is at the core of what we're trying to look forward to. Uh, I, I have zero desire to pit my prognosticative abilities based on my superior exegesis against somebody else's eschatological plan or calendar or anything along those lines. I just don't. Because it's okay, I mean... You can take the two smartest people, uh, you know, direct revelation aside, the two smartest Bible study people, who I have no idea who those two would be, and neither of them are going to have any kind of super inside track on what's coming in the future. And the reason I say that is because Jesus says it hasn't even been revealed to him. It's something that's been held close to the heart of the Father. Only he knows the day or the hour. However, we have a tendency, and I didn't put this scripture up there, but we have a tendency uh, that we come by honestly in our heritage in the kingdom. If you'll think about it, at the beginning of Acts, um, as Luke began to tell the story of Acts, 
it quickly moved to the place where Jesus was with the disciples out at Bethany just before his ascension. And uh, there was obviously some post-resurrection time that he had with the disciples on the road to Emmaus in the upper room, uh, the Sea of Galilee and other places. But when it boiled down to the introduction to, to the book of Acts, the introduction to that narration of the history of the church as it was beginning there, the guys and the gals had had spent the most time with Jesus and had the most incredible interpersonal relationship and insights with him had one question in mind. And the question was, do you guys know what it is? Do you remember? It's now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. (laughs) Out of everything that they could have had on their heart, after the resurrection, after watching him die, after being forgiven betrayal, after uh, all of that, the thing that they had on their heart was a backward-looking focus. Is now the time you're going to get Israel back where it belongs? And he said, that's not the point. That's not the point. And then shortly thereafter, he zooms up in uh, in the ascension, and they go and, you know, he told us to wait for power and high. So tonight, what we did, listening to the Holy Spirit, making room in your life, making room to stop. Does God care about dogs? Yeah. So that thought about God and his thought about you and his ability to find you and Jason uh, in, in in that moment of need, that's a big deal. That's a huge deal. Just like praying for people, Dave, just like you hearing and hearing. And how cool was it that you got evidence in this three or four day series on blight, you got evidence that the Lord was not just interested in the big thing, which I think he is, but he turned it right around to Karen and touched her overnight. That's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that. That was, yeah, that gets down to about where the rubber meets the road, you know, the most. So anyway, uh, I understand those two guys. They're not pitted against one another. The reason this stuff is important, even reason looking at at, at, at the future, at the eternity that we're expecting is important, is because it helps, it helps govern our thoughts about our Father. That's, Really, one of the biggest things Jesus came to do. I know a lot of people say he came to, uh, you know, die on the cross because of our sins. Uh, I think he had to die on the cross because of our sins. I think he came to reveal the Father to us. Anyway, the other review is this little little uh, deal here. Uh, again, uh, I know most of you have seen this, but or heard about it from Dan. This is just the word justice. It's very reminiscent of what went on with hell. You know, hell's all over the place. There's like none, and and two or three Bibles, and then there's 150 and none. Uh, in NASB, 129 justice in the Old Testament, nine in the New. Of that 129, uh, the vast majority of them, I think maybe almost all of them, I know 114 of them, are the translation word mishpat, which is really fundamentally uh, the word judgment. So justice and judgment are all mixed together there. Uh, King James has 28 versus 129. Young's literal has eight and eight. Anyway, you can see the point. My take on this, and I want to I want to reaffirm that, is that when you see variables like this in an important concept in the Scripture, you can be absolutely certain that theology, particular theology, whatever a person is, or a translation group or denominational translation or anything, and it's not people being manipulative or weird. It's just the way it is. What you think theologically comes out in how you look at words. And so that means that what we think theologically comes out in what we expect about tomorrow what we expect about healing, what we expect about our country, what we expect about um, eternity. So the variables absolutely give you the freedom to look and examine this stuff more closely. You're not betraying anybody. You're not betraying uh, the Bible or anything along those lines. You know, And if you were, you'd know it, or one of us would know it and tell you to stop. <laughs> so anyway... All right, so last week we, we used these, I threw these little illustrations together. Eternity option A, eternity option B, eternity option C. I didn't name them last week, so I named them this week. So eternity option A is heaven or hell. It's basically bliss versus torment. And it is the consensus of expectation for eternity. Now, that's weird because some people would be offended if I said, if, by characterizing that theological anticipation, that theological doctrine, as their expectation. But that's what it is. That's what it is. It's a doctrine, too. 
And uh, there is the the thought, I, I, I don't know anybody that holds that belief that doesn't think it's biblical. So I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. They are trying to respond to what they see in Scripture. I know a bunch of people that are involved in option B. And uh, so it's called Christian universal reconciliation. And Christian is important because it's not just general universal reconciliation because you don't even have to think about Jesus in general uh, universalism. And there's there are all kinds of uh, spiritual groups and so on and so forth that believe everybody's going from one place to another. You know, reincarnation does that. There's all kinds of steps for it and everything. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Christian universal rec- where Jesus is the center, and that's what that little thing represents. Jesus is the center of everybody that died down there on the earth, ending up standing there before the, uh, the the kingdom. Number three, I didn't have a name for it. I th- I thought about just putting question marks on it, but it would have made it seem less significant somehow. So it's it. I, I titled it "New Creation" or "Covenant," "New Covenant," now and not yet. And then I'm willing to ask the question of you tonight as we talk about it: Is it a coherent scriptural view? And what I mean by coherent is does it hang together? Do scriptures and the things that it refers to, do the things that are hard for it to address, et cetera, et cetera. And I could put that question under any one of these. Are any of these a coherent scriptural view and answer? Okay? All right. Now, that was the those those were the images that I created last week to illustrate the and see which one justice would plug in. I haven't talked to too many of you about that, but it'd be fun to do it sometime. I upgraded the illustrations some. So this is the heaven. And so here's some stuff you can see. Uh, hell is populated. The crowd's not just waiting. The kingdom's up there. Jesus is bigger and ruling, connected with that kingdom. I'm going to back up just a second before you take the picture, just so you can take a look at the other one. So see, I kind of had these all really similar. It's just that Jesus was pointing people to hell on one side and the other. So that's not really a very good illustration of what this theology is about. What this theology is about is a very dualistic, two-party, two-place afterlife. And so down here is is hell. And then when I did the option three, I included that little black thing as the outer darkness. Okay, And so what this illustrates is that there's two places to go. There's God's place. Remember God, the, the, the circle there that represents God? So the kingdom isn't back there someplace like I'd illustrated before. It's literally where God is. It's being with God in heaven. And then Jesus is there, and he's ruling. And unfortunately, I laid the illustration out backwards because of the way the globe was, because it should have been the other way. Then Jesus would have been at the right hand of heaven. It would have been a little bit better symbol, but I, maybe I'll reverse it. <laughs> anyway, uh, but it's it's all in there. So there's two places. And people are, are kind of already, don't worry about the people standing by their graves yet. The people are kind of either already in one place or already in another. That is essentially the thing. Now, um, there's a lot of problems with particular scriptures as it applies to this. And it depends on who's holding what doctrine, what denomination to come out of, what theological school. Because... There is a sense, most everybody I know in, a, in the evangelical world or Pentecostal world that is holding a hell view like this, a dualistic hell view, where there's bliss as one goal up there in heaven and torment as another goal. They vacillate back and forth. I used to vacillate back and forth from believing that people are there already, meaning when you die and you're a jerk and you haven't accepted Jesus, or you're not a jerk and you haven't accepted Jesus, you go to hell. So like you're, you're here, you die uh, tomorrow, and immediately you're in hell. You guys know that way? I think that's the way most, of, most people apply it. I don't know if, if you ask them, I don't think they would argue it because you could ask them questions that weren't even that threatening, just like, well, what about the general resurrection? <laughs> you know, Or what about... Uh, you know, that kind of stuff. But this is, I think, a general sort of iconization of that expectation. The same thing goes about hell. I mean, heaven. Heaven is a destination. And it's up there, and it's where God is, and it's in God, and, and you're there. Now, 
Uh, the cross, of course, is central in this, and that's the, that's the difference. Even though, and, and Doris pointed this out last week in her comment very astutely, in this option, it's very confusing if you read the Bible and talk to people about it. What is it that puts you up there or down here? Because in, in uh, like Reformed theology, and the thing that's pretty common in our country, the only thing that matters is the cross. That if you accept Jesus, then you end up up in heaven. And if you don't accept Jesus, you end up down here. And there's a verse that kind of points to that. And we'll look at it in just a second. Because this does answer a couple, three scriptures pretty, pretty interestingly, pretty well. But the problem with that is that there's a bunch of other scriptures that talk about uh, that you're going to be rewarded for what you do. You're going to be judged for what you did and didn't do, depending on positive and negative. You guys are familiar with some of those scriptures, right? Look at them here. So anyway, that's the idea. Okay, so another concept, the reason that all that is together is down the, the, the fire and the darkness is because most people that I know lump all those same concepts in Scripture together. The outer darkness, hell, all that. So that's this section. Now, if there's ever a PowerPoint slide that's got too much information on it, this is the one. <laughs> so this one I'm going to submit to the worst PowerPoint slide uh, information content contest and maybe I can get reimbursed. All right, so, uh, but... One nice thing about this is that that's all the scriptures there are that are interpreted as hell for the most part. So uh, there's hell fire. There is outer darkness. So you see fire, you see outer darkness. This also is in most people's minds synonymous with the lake of fire. And then there's the fires of Gehenna, sometimes mentioned as fires and just sometimes Gehenna. That's usually what people mean. Then there's that one passage in Matthew 18 where it talks about being delivered over to the tormentors until you pay the very last farthing. That's problematic because that means it also says in there you're not going to get out until, which getting out is not generally an option in this view of hell and so on. And then the other one is outside the city. Uh, remember outside the city are liars and, and um, all that kind of stuff. So for the most part, all of that there. Now, that's not too much of an interpretive problem that outside the city, because there's not much emphasis in this eschatology and in this picture of eternity uh, with anything going on back down here at the earth. It's not that people don't acknowledge that there's going to be a new Jerusalem coming down, but the emphasis is on going to heaven or going to hell. Going to heaven or going to hell. All right, so heaven is that target. There's a lot of scriptures about heaven. That's almost exhaustive on the health side. This is totally just representative. But, uh, it, it, you know, paradise there is the one, if you remember, that the um, uh, thief on the cross said, you know, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then kingdom, of course, is there. Heaven is uh, there in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, there's scriptures that talk about an expectation being saved up for you in heaven. Uh, a guarantee of heaven, that kind of thing. So that's what that's what that's about. The other element is the people now standing by there and the color that they are. So those various flesh tones represent one group of people, and you'll notice that they are similar to the people that are already up in heaven. You know, the the light brown, the yellow, the whitish, the darker brown. The people in hell, you'll notice, are all gray in the illustration. So what this means down at the bottom, this is option, eternal conscious torment, slash, or dash, uh, double predestination. So it means that the people that are, that are dying down here are already predetermined, according to most theologies that adopt this. Not, not all, because Armenianism says there's free will and you can't tell whether those people are gray or uh, technicolor. But the technicolor gray combination or distinction in a lot of, of theology about a dualistic view of going to heaven, going to hell, these are people that are not elect, the gray ones. And the variations in the grayness, it doesn't really matter if they're super nasty or they're just uh, ignorant and don't know the Lord because they're all predestined to go over there. And the other ones technically are predestined to go up there, even though... There's a big belief that 
you have to respond and do a bunch of stuff. So I'm, I, I'm really trying not to misrepresent that in a pejorative way. I think that's exactly what a lot of people believe. So this really does seem to answer a couple of scriptures, those two in particular. And it really fails to answer a lot of these kind of scriptures. Like 2 Peter 3, 9, is God is not willing that any would perish. Now, most people that believe this would say, well, he doesn't want people to perish, but he doesn't have control over that because some people are going to. And that, that's okay. I can understand a person thinking that, but uh, that's a bit of a problem. First uh, Timothy 4.10 uh, talks about God as being the Savior of all, especially believers. So the very fact that he's called the Savior of all is challenging to this concept because how is he the Savior of the people over here in the in the uh, Gehenna fires slash hellfires slash uh, outer darkness slash all this kind of stuff. First um, Corinthians fifteen twenty two and twenty eight. You guys know that that's that passage uh, about God being all in all and that Jesus has to reign until. So, uh, what is being defeated in this kind of an uh, eschatology? It's just something to think about. Uh, 1 Peter 3, 18-20, Romans. A lot of these have to do with all. So this doesn't do a very good job answering the scriptures about all. So here's a couple of those scriptures. So here's the Matthew one. But you can see it does do a good job, kind of. If this were the only scripture about there, I can understand why people would believe that. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So, uh, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or naked or, or a stranger or sick in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, one of the things that we have to study to make any sense out of this is we have to study the concept of eternal and the words aeon and aeonios and all that kind of stuff. So we're going to do that, but I don't have time to jump into it tonight. But you can see how it would be stupid for me to say this scripture doesn't suggest that view of eternity. Because it does. It does. It doesn't only suggest that, I'll tell you that, but it does suggest that. And then the other one, is this one. kind of? Uh, it even marries into, because it talks about the same place prepared for the devil and his angel, and the other one. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. So now we got books in the, in the equation. And I, I probably should have put books in the illustration. Now I realize I need to do that. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. That's why I emphasize that. The dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. Now, that's a little problematic with the, how do you go to heaven? You accept Jesus. How do you go to hell? You don't accept Jesus. Everybody does all kinds of things that make, warrant them going to hell, but you escape that by accepting Jesus. So then why and in what form are we judged according to their deeds? It's a little bit problematic, but I can understand how the dominant things about the book of life and your name not being written in there overrides it. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. So to go back here, you can see, on one of the later ones, I have people coming up out of the ocean. i got to change this <laughs> Anyway, I forgot that. But anyway, you see what I'm saying? And then the other unique thing here about this is the concept that a lot of people believe that hell is a place where demons are tormenting people or that the devil rules over or something like that. It doesn't really say too much about that in Scripture, if anything, except the idea of being turned over to tormentors. But that doesn't seem to be a permanent condition. So anyway, that's why I represent it in there. But I do think a lot of people, not just because of Dante's thing or whatever, I think a lot of people think that there's interaction or somehow. Some people don't. Some just think it's the torment, whatever the case is. Most everybody thinks God's not in there for sure. So for the second possible, it's this Christian universal re reconciliation. This isn't going to take long because I'm not going to talk much about it. As you'll notice, I didn't change my thing. 
I, I have a lot of people that, uh, that are friends that believe this. I love them. The challenges are always digging into what it means when the Bible talks about judgment or punishment or something. In other words, if everybody's going to be saved, it already is saved on the basis of something that nobody has anything to do with, what does the Bible mean when it talks about punishment, judgment, and stuff like that? So this one just looks like that, the same way it was. People are all going to end up going there. And um, so the fire passages, one of the things that has to happen for this people to believe it, and some very, very wonderful Jesus-loving Bible-studying people that I know, say that all the fire passages are to be metaphorical. So the, the metaphorical fires of Gehenna, fires of this, fires of that, is just really a metaphor. Now, I don't know about that because... I don't know about 1 Corinthians 3.16. We'll look at it in just a second. Uh, but if, if we're to admit that this doesn't really answer much of what the revelation in those first two, Matthew 25 and Revelation 20 is about, it does sort of answer this. 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6, God uh, wants everybody to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3, 9, God's not willing and he should perish all can repentance. 1 Timothy 4, 10, God is uh, the savior of all, especially those that believe. Uh, you know, all that stuff. So you go into it. Romans 8, or Romans 11, 28, 32 is one God assigned uh, all to disobedience so that he can have mercy on all. So this is in response to the 50 or 60 all scriptures that speak about salvation. Okay, so it answers those, but it really doesn't deal too much with the ones on top. And here's the 1 Corinthians 13 one. According to the grace of God, which was given me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, hay, wood, and straw, see how the options are there across the board. Uh, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed in fire. The fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Now, I'm not comfortable making that allusion to fire a metaphor. Because, look at what it says. It says, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Yes, sir. Are you saying that they think that all references to fire, or that some portion of them believe all references to fire. Yeah, there's a, there's a pretty good contention. Or is there a distinction between a positive fire and negative fire? I, I mean, I'm sure that they would say that the fire that uh, Peter was warming himself over was a real fire. But th no, there's generally so, not. Generally, then my question on that is, how do they take that God is fire? I know, it's a problem. And that that might be the very fire this is talking about. Exactly. And that's the thing that makes them nervous. Both fire and judgment, there's not very much talk about it because they want all that to be on Jesus. They want all of that to already be a past tense reality, nothing that we have to go to. Now, that's not everybody in the movement. And and it's it, uh, there are voices now coming out saying, we don't need to be afraid of this. Let's just see what it says. Let's just do it. It doesn't automatically mean it's this irreversible, punitive, no repentance kind of fire. But in broad strokes, a, a lot of mm -hmm. folks with this view see fire as purely negative. Therefore, it's best, yeah. best viewed as symbolism or metaphor. Yeah, not. yeah, okay. yeah. That, that, that's it. And I'm not saying that there isn't a, uh, any metaphorical use of fire. There probably is. But it, I just don't think it's necessary. Uh, and again, uh, it, some of them would be mad at me for saying that because they'd say, well, that's not really what we think. And I go, okay. I, I get it. I get it. Okay, but what I what I what I see here is I see a relationship that it, that is beginning to reveal to us what salvation is, and I don't want to take it away. There's a purging, cleansing, transforming aspect that Paul's talking about here for the works that we do, and those works are kind of like the deeds that we're going to be judged for. So fire seems that it could have a pretty positive relationship with it, and I don't want to throw it away. Just that's my thing. All right, so number three, new creation covenant. Now and not yet. Is it coherent? Now, I'm not completely committed to this. I think N.T. Wright would feel like I was ripping his, his terms off because he doesn't agree with this, and I could get in trouble, even though he doesn't know me, but I wish he did, and it'd be fun to get him mad at me so I could talk to him. That'd be great. <laughs> but anyway, uh, this is what I'm calling it. I'm calling it new creation in, in covenant expectations. And the reason I am is because there are elements in that we've been studying. Remember when we studied about 
image bearing. We've been studying about the, the new covenant that God's already committed to this thing and, and, and he's, he's not counting our trespasses against us. But that doesn't mean that, that, that there's, there's nothing, that, it, it, you know, that there's no transformation, that there's no change. So anyway, uh, here's this picture. I modified it a little bit. I had people coming out of the sea. The, the, the sea gave up the dead in it. Uh, another thing, I wanted to kind of illustrate, uh, and I don't know how to do it with just these little sort of uh, non-detailed iconic figures, but that group there on the same level as that guy is kind of suggesting the possibility of getting greeted in heaven by people that are part of your family, your ancestors, whatever the case is. I don't know. It's just a possibility. Meaning there's interaction after you die right away. There's a consciousness. Now, that doesn't have to be true. Uh, Martin Luther, for instance, believed in soul sleep. And so he his illustration would probably be much more focused on a mass encounter at the time of the resurrection. But uh, again, it's it's possible to conceive. So uh, I've I've seen seen things in my heart and in my imagination and my mind's eye that were extremely comforting to me. When my mom died, uh, when my dad died, when Vicky's father died, uh, she saw a picture of my dad greeting him, and they never met one another, but it was pretty cool. And then you know we've lost some people close to us in the not too distant past, like Bob Cohen and stuff. I saw a very clear image of Jesus and Bob interacting. So I know that my, my expectations, my anticipation, my expectations, they're based on that a little bit. Seeing people, we've seen in ascensions, we've seen people that we knew and, and all kinds of stuff. So, uh, and I also see this as the reason there's so many people down there popping up around their gravestones and coming out to see us. I, uh, in this view, I am anticipating uh, that's, that's sort of my interpretation of what Paul said when he said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I see Jesus as the primary one greeting people. Now, I changed some things, and this was in part of our conversation, Adam. Jesus is also sitting up there on his throne, which is also the gate to that Father's place, the new, new city again. And I couldn't quite get it big enough for you to see the details, but I'll send you a large copy when the time comes. But anyway, and there's already people up there. And you notice that those people are all the same color. That's not because the glory of the nations isn't going to still be different and be brought in. It's because they're all, they're there. They're all radiant, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Now, I don't know if that's true. Okay, I don't I don't. But they've gone through the fire. They've been refined. refined. They're proven gold, that kind of thing, is what the illustration illustrates. The cross is still significant. Jesus is there touching and greeting. I added somebody to the outer darkness. And I really struggled with how dark should that be, that person in there, because I think it would just be dark. I don't think you'd actually be able to see him. I think that's the point of the outer darkness. But nevertheless, you can tell. Now, that just because that person's dark gray, in this scenario, it doesn't mean they're in the same position that they were the, the gray people in hell. And I also believe that, that time works in every one of these areas. I believe it can because God's committed and I don't find anything that, that in the Scriptures says that Jesus can't keep revealing the Father or that the Holy Spirit can't keep... You know, in other words, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit's going to be in you and with you forever. We said not in you and with you, you know. But of course, in the first scenario, the Holy Spirit's not even in you if you're either not elect or if you haven't accepted the Lord. So it's not a problem for that that deal. But for me, I try to take those things kind of seriously. He's going to be innocent with us forever. That would mean in some sense, even in the outer darkness. I don't know. I don't know. And again, please don't say, my pastor thinks he knows what heaven's going to be like. I don't. I don't. I don't. But what I do know is I know what forces are might be at work there. Okay? So and then now you've got the journey and there's people along the way of that journey. There's transformation possible. Like in this one situation, I put all this family in this one particular color cuz maybe this is guy's got like a racial thing he's got to overcome. It's unresolved. And so he's going to get a chance to meet this family that he treated poorly because of his fear 
or his self-centeredness or his bitterness or whatever the case is. Um, maybe that's his family. And I don't know, maybe they're still alive and he's got to contend with that. Or I don't know. I don't know. You know, I don't know. Have I made it clear that I don't know? <laughs> but I would say this. I don't think that the first option creates a meaningful, sustainable eternity. I don't think God would author it. Now, that's not the only reason I don't think so. I don't think it holds up Scripture either, because there's just Scripture after Scripture after Scripture it doesn't address. And there's two or three Scriptures that it's built on. This, on the other hand, I do think addresses a few more. Like, okay, does this answer, or does it struggle to answer the Matthew 25? I don't think so. Because there's plenty of fire there for the whole idea of one guy going into the fire. Does it struggle to answer Hebrews 9, 23 through 28? We'll look at that in just a second. I've got all these scriptures following up. I don't know I'm going to have time to do them. Uh, does it struggle to answer those questions? The lake of fire. I see a lake of fire. I see an outer darkness. They're not the same thing. You know what I'm saying? And if time is allowed to still work, or if eternity really consists of aeon, ages, then I can see that all of those scriptures, even the all ones, can work. Right? So here's a couple of the scriptures. Uh, what I put in there is, does this struggle to answer this? So here's the Hebrew 9 one. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of things in heaven to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. For Christ did not enter the holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would suffer often himself as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, has and consummation doesn't necessarily mean end. It can also mean beginning. In a more traditional world, the consummation of your marriage meant the beginning of it, not the end of it. Okay? Um, uh, in the consummation of the ages, he has been manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Meaning that sin's not the major player in eternity. And inasmuch as it's appointed for men to die once and after this comes a judgment. So what my question is, is does a scenario like that, that's got a lot of stuff like that going on with some purification, some poor dude over there stuck in himself in, in, in the outer darkness for a couple of aeons or whatever, does that ruin the revelation of the Hebrews passage that it's appointed for men once to die and after this comes a judgment? And I don't think so. I think that we're going to be able to watch a lot of things go on between death and judgment and realize that that scripture has not been violated. The revelation of it's not been violated at all. A lot of people think that it, this, I mean, I've, I've seen this over and over and over again, used to defend the fact that when you die, that's it. There's judgment. There's no more interaction going on. It's a point for you to die once and then there's judgment. Bang, bang. But that doesn't even take into account Things like the people standing before the Lord saying, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? Or stuff like that. So I don't think this scenario does violence to this scripture. You might um, have a different opinion, and that would be fine. Here's another one. Uh, this is the one about Christ reigning. You know, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all men most pitied. That could be interpreted. Well, um, it's good to get saved because it makes your life good. But if that's the only hope you have, well, then we're to be most pitied because we're giving up a lot of really cool, fun, uh, debauched stuff just to live as a Christian. I don't think that's what it means. I think it means, and I think it sees, as Paul's talking about it, because he's talking eschatologically here, finishing up with the idea so that God will be all in all and that Jesus has to reign forever. I think he's talking about something going on later that brings a conclusion to what Jesus did here when he made the sacrifice and so on. Okay, it's just my thoughts. And then the next one, does this image of the afterlife with all its diversity and all the things that I don't know, does it uh, make room for this idea of Jesus being received into heaven 
and uh, reigning until the reconciliation of all things. I think it does. And the fact that it's, uh, it's the seat of all the families in the earth. So back to here just real quick. And I think we're just about done. It's just an icon of what eternity might be like. Uh, to be honest with you, it's close to what my expectations are based on the Scripture and on trying to know God. And that is really the point I want to make. God is the one who is in charge of eternity. It's going to unfold according to His plan, not according to my sin or failures or my plan or my imagination. It's going to come from Him. Uh, and then, how about this one? The idea of uh, eternal fire and the devil is angels. I don't think it does violence to that either. I can still see this being true. I can see Jesus looking and seeing and sensing and telling the truth. Yes, sir. Um, I've had five and a half years to think about this since Janice moved on into eternity. Uh, <clears throat> and one thing that I think I always knew, but I didn't think of it the right way, and C.S. Lewis actually talked about this when his wife was dying. Mm -hmm. Eternity is real life, not this. Eternity is real life. We get ready for that. We learn about that. God, Jesus brings us into that. Um, C.S. Lewis said real life hasn't begun yet. I don't know if that's exactly the right verbiage I would use, but it's yeah. fascinating to think, because we keep on thinking, well, that's sort of the ethereal... Uh, we're going to cross into this curtain and float in clouds. And no, real life is eternity. And we get to, for lack of a better term, go there or be that. Um, I was just reading the other day, uh, I, don't, I think it was in John chapter 11. And Jesus used these words, he who believes in me does not die. And I reread it. I'm like, wow. Mm -hmm. Didn't say dies and resurrect. He he used this verbiage. You don't die. And I couldn't help but when at Janice's funeral, I couldn't help but say it. It was just on my tongue. And it was just a reflex. Janice isn't dead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely uh, tremendously respect C.S. Lewis. I, I probably wouldn't use the word real because the counterpoint to real suggests unreal. And it's like our life is unreal right now. I would suggest, I would use a word probably like complete or being completed and we're not completed yet. The now and not yet kind of idea. Do I think that the new creation is in existence right now as a result of the work that Jesus did and finished on the cross? Yes, I do. Do I think that it's fully manifest? No, I don't. So there's all kinds of ways to talk about that. But yeah, I totally, I totally, totally get that. Anybody else? Another viewpoint that keep, that comes up with the idea of a good God is total destruction or annihilationism, mm -hmm. however you want to describe that. Um, what are your thoughts on how that might fit into this view? It would seem like that if, if that is, in fact, something to be considered, it seems like it might lie somewhere beyond that outer darkness. Yeah. But yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on that? My, my thoughts are that, that I... I do believe that God, I believe we're made in the image of God. I believe one of those aspects is that we do have free will. Do I think there are limits on our free will? Uh, maybe. Do I think God is going to have to violate our free will to get us saved? No. That's one of the reasons that I don't want to put a lot of attention on just the kind of general universalism, because that's another kind of determinism. It's like, okay, everybody's going to be saved no matter what. And so it's a, I don't think determinism plays a role in this. I think intent, I think invitation, I think relationship, I think union does. So for instance, that, that, that dude in the outer darkness, I don't know how long that could be because it won't matter. Now, is it possible? Okay, so my, oops, sorry. My thoughts actually come from an answer to a question and a vision the Lord gave me as I was thinking and studying about this. And so I give it with that caveat. I can't prove this from Scripture. Uh, I, was, I was asking the Lord about the very question you asked. Lord, can we corrupt ourselves? And I felt like he said, yes. Can we corrupt ourselves completely, forever? And he said, you mean like annihilation? 
And I said, well, yeah. And he said, yes. But keep in mind that annihilation comes through me. And then I saw this little vision of a dude and everything. Um, that's, the, that's really the best explanation I can give you from my own personal belief. Uh, I, I don't believe that God will have to strip us of our freedom. I, I don't think our will, even if our, if, even if our will is absolute in, in, in how it's granted, I don't think we, it comes with absolute power to resist. When, how many people, if in fact Jesus can continue to reveal the Father after death, how many people are going to recognize, oh my God, I was completely wrong. And that's, that's the only hurdle they've got to get over. You know, or maybe there's some people that are so bruised and damaged and bitter to everything around them that the only thing that'll ever bring them to the light of who they are and what they need is being absolutely, utterly alone. For what? How long? Does it matter? An age? Is an age a year, 10 years, a million years? Ages of ages? And so here's the question. When will love give up? Well, the Bible tells me that love never fails. I was challenging a friend of mine who's an annihilationist. I said, what do you think that means? He said, I think it means love never quits. And I said, well, okay, what's the difference when it's God's love? What's the difference of it never failing and never quitting if God is love? So that's kind of what I think. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, can I, can I nail that down? Absolutely. Say, here, here, uh, check verse this, that, and the other. No, it's a combination of those realities. Love never quits. Love never fails. Um, love counts no record of wrong. So, for instance, in my mind, in my imagination, my theological imagination, I'm talking about sentience now, that dude that's in the outer darkness, is God mad at him? No. Is God frustrated with him? No. Is God grieving for him because he's not enjoying the life he was created to enjoy? Yeah, I think so. Is God ready to quit? No. Is he exasperated? Is he going to be driven over the edge? Does he have to give an accounting to somebody that's higher than him to say, we've invested enough in this jerk? <laughs> I don't think so. See, none of that makes sense to me. None of that makes sense to me. So if, if, if the, the moment of death is not some sort of mandatory threshold, then I can see God being patient for a long time because Jesus is still sitting up there ruling and reigning until every enemy is, is put down. It's a good question, though. Okay, Richard. Why do you think God can't be angry at somebody? Uh, because they're not... I mean, I'm, I'm angry I, I at them because they're not seeing yeah, what I'm yeah. trying to... I mean, he was angry at the children of Israel. He was, yeah. And so if he was angry then... You can be angry now, but what does the anger drive him to? What, you know... Uh, it's it, not. It's. I understand. To say God's yeah, I got you. angry. I, I didn't say okay. couldn't. I said I didn't think he would be. Yeah. I mean, you'd think his anger would be. I, I just see where he would be very frustrated. <laughs> for their I mean, sake. Yeah, for yeah. their sake. Yeah, and no, I mean, that's good. And uh, plus, you know, well, you, you got kids. Angry at the scars. Angry at the lives. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, no, I don't. I don't. That, that's a form good. Form of good. anger. It's probably good that we don't talk about God not being angry, because I mean, the Lord did tell me, "Hey, you got to let me be angry." I was angry at the children of Israel for a whole generation, but uh, He also said, when He said that, "Look what I did. I fed them. I took care of them. I didn't let their clothes wear out. I gave them miraculous provision. I was right. still in their midst." So, yeah. in that aspect, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you totally. I agree with you totally. Yeah. Angry to act, frustrated to give up. That's what I'm talking about. I, I, don't, I don't find any of those things a compelling argument that he's going to quit or that love's going to fail. And love could not fail by just keeping loving even though the guy never gets saved. I don't know. I mean, so I, again, I don't know how to answer the questions. Um, it's, it's good you brought that up, though, because it's easy to slip into that kind of thing in the middle, the universal thing. How could God... He's so nice, send him to hell. Well, I don't know, he'd send him to hell if that was the most loving thing to do. <laughs> if his goal was to get him fixed, or get him complete, or whatever. My encouragement to everybody is think about this. And if, if uh, the, the expectations that you were trained into, or that you inherited, if they don't answer 
who God is and what the scripture says, don't be afraid of exploring other options. It's okay. You're not a heretic. Matter of fact, you might actually be wandering around and find a community of people that have been around for thousands of years. And they may even actually be people that are already like up there in that shiny, shiny body thing. And, you know, who knows? So just please know that you have permission to question the common, including the one I'm suggesting, um, expectations. And they are only expectations. I guarantee you, nobody here knows for sure how it's going to look. But we can, I think, begin to question and, and, and be humble and seek the Lord on the particulars that need to be there for eternity to be eternity. Okay? All right. Well, Father, uh, I have talked way more about this than you did, Jesus. Uh, when somebody tried to pin you down, you just go, no, I don't know. This is not Father's. So, Father, we, we bless you and we trust you, not only with our eternity, but with others' eternities. And if, if any of us in here are weaving together uh, our prayers and our faith about things that you do and, and who you are in this life and in that life in a way that confuses the two and causes us to, I don't know, lose heart or get discouraged or anything along those lines. I pray that you would set us free from that, that you would heal the part in us that needs to reach out for that kind of certainty and that tries to replace trusting you and your eternal love with some kind of biblical certainty. Uh, I don't think, Holy Spirit, that you inspired the scriptures in a way to tr for us to be certain about the things that you're calling us to have faith in and to trust you in and to trust our lives with you in. So I thank you for that, and I thank you for these precious people, Lord. In Jesus' name, yeah.